Good afternoon. You're listening to the Living Writers Show. My name is T. Hetzel, and today Joanne Harris joins us in the studio. Um, welcome, Joanne. Hi there. Thanks for coming. Hey, it's great to be here. <laughs> well, it's great to see you sitting across from me. Um, Joanne is on tour right now, book tour, with her uh, her book Ruin Marks, her latest book, which is at just its U.S. release was January 8th. That's right, yes. So thank you for coming to us early. I feel like we're getting there. Well, it's nice. Um, I mean, the book's been out in England for a little while, and so I've, I've had the chance to, to tour both places, which is great. How, how long has it been out in, in England, the, like the UK? Yes, yeah, since, since August. Since August. Oh, yeah. So you're, this is almost, um, now it's your, the le- your US leg of the tour. Uh, it kind of is, but given that my short-term memory isn't what it used to be, I, I'm kind of having to relearn what the book's about and to, to get used to talking to audiences about it again, which is great, because I've been touring for my other book as well, my adult book. Oh, um, what's, what's the adult book right now? Well, in America, or? it's going to be called The Girl With No Shadow, and that will be out in April. Oh. So I'm kind of juggling these two books and these two quite different audiences, and it's, it's kind of freaky, it's good. So you're on tour c- concurrently, so you're also talking about that other I am, yes. We can talk about that one later too. If you have a copy of it, we'll put it on the table. Bring it out on the table. We'll, we'll well, do it won't a- be out for a while, but uh, we can. We can. Okay. <laughs> um, well, just as way of introduction, I'm going to read your short bio in Ruin Marks, the book that uh, that we'll hear hear from. Uh, today. Joanne Harris studied modern and medieval languages at St. Catherine's College, Cambridge, and was a teacher for 15 years before turning to writing full-time. Her books, which include Chocolate, Five Quarters of the Orange, and Gentlemen and Players, have been published in over 40 countries and have won a number of British and international awards. Ms. Harris lives in England with her husband and daughter. Is all that is all that true, Joanne? It's true and very boring. <laughs> I know. We'll get to the good stuff. There's a bunch of meaty stuff in here. Like, um, did you write this? Her hobbies. Did you write that? The, the mooching, lounging, uh, that's, my, that's my who's who entry. Who's who. It is, it is traditional in England to either take who's who deadly serious or not. In my case, I chose not, and so I, I put I put many hobbies in there, which which I've later been been questioned rather narrowly about by by people who don't necessarily understand the whole who's who thing, or that it's funny. Yeah, because mm. the priest baiting part, right? Like maybe the priest some baiting is completely wrong. Kind of getting on your case, for I'm that, quite maybe. happy also to bait imams, rabbis, <laughs> shaman, monks, nuns. You know anybody? I don't just do priests. You know, I'm, I'm very, very, very open to to different kinds of people to bait. Right. Well, that's see, an open, kind. I can, I can just your heart is glowing. It's almost like ET. <laughs> no, it's just the jet lag. <laughs> yeah, how are you feeling? Actually, I'm fine. I'm feeling really well. I've just come back from Norway, where it was you know minus 40 and Detroit seems jolly warm (laughs) and very bright because up there in the north of Norway it's dark 24 hours a day and so I'm kind of getting slightly exhilarated just by the light which is wonderful I'm gonna have to replay this this part of your show over and over when we head more into the like the dark days of you do that you keep remembering Norway (laughs) It could be Norway. Were you there doing research? Were you doing some... I was writing a a little article for the London Times about extreme tourism. And so my daughter and I were over there. We were dog sledding and sleeping in igloos and just basically having a fabulous time in the cold. Ooh, that that sounds that sounds mm. wonderful though. With dog sledding, were you? Um, did you have your own team and your own musher? Yep, absolutely. No, no, I was the musher. I, that really? was, it was just me. 
You were the musher. I was. So that needs to be added in here. Yes, yes. Hobbies. Hobbies. Dog wrangling. Mushing. Dog wrangling. Exactly. You never know when it's going to. Yeah. You never know when a husky might come in handy. (laughs) It's true. And and you also play the bass guitar. I do, among other things. Yes. And my my hobbies, playing the bass guitar. And I'm also learning Old Norse at the moment in an attempt to... uh, to read some of those uh, those old texts in the original. I know that sounds a really sort of geeky academic thing to do, but actually that, that's the sort of person I am, really. It, yes, that's the read I get from... No, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were, when we were doing the sound check, we were joking about, well, what, what's your astrological sign? And, and you, you clarified whether it was... Um, going to be Roman or, or the, the ruin one. So what, what's your, your ruin... Uh, since since the book is called Rune Marks and we're going to be talking about runes, um, oh, have you you've drawn it on the table? I'm sorry, I'm addicted to drawing on tables, and this <laughs> one has been, been drawn on before, and so I, I kind of figure I'm not going to get told off. No, I'm I'm giving you some runes on the table there. No, I've I've uh, I've been interested in runes for years, ever since I was a kid, and because I come from Yorkshire, which is a Viking stamping ground, and there are just runic stones all over the place and you can't really dig in your garden without picking up something that belonged to the Vikings, something that they, they threw away or ate or wrote on or or murdered or something. You know, <laughs> so when you're digging in the dirt as a child there, it, it takes on a totally different flavour. When I live uh, near York, um, mm-hmm. which is the most enormous Viking settlement, and when I was a kid, the thing I really wanted to be was a Viking when I grew up. And uh, the next best thing was, was going on little archaeological digs in York because at the time they were working on volunteers and so I worked terribly happily in this this Viking dig in all my holidays, and just dug up amazing things. And uh, what did you dig up? Kept them. No, kept um, them. <laughs> well, no, actually, the, most the of British it is. The museum will be after you now. <laughs> most of it is is actually leavings from food. A lot of it is oyster shells, bones, bits of broken crockery. Once we were we were terribly excited because we found a little cache of weapons, but that was that was really the most exciting thing we found in in every every year that I did it. It was, however, a wonderful experience, and I really liked it, and it kind of crystallised this this sort of Norse fixation that I'd had ever since. Yes, and and that's what you well, and that's what you studied when you went. To, to school that was more medieval studies um no actually well, i didn't i did no? oh. i did french and german and oh, okay. i mean i did medieval french and medieval german but I that's that, that's not ancient languages as such that that's really quite modern um <laughs> you're talking to an american <laughs> well, yes i forgot older than that older than america right. <laughs> um, so so th- so this but this is like a deep a deep rooted fascination then and continues yes. with learning the old norse and the runes well very so, much it's nice to be able to read those texts in the original because you know a translation is just a translation you miss out on all sorts of things and the language is very interesting i mean old icelandic has got about 40 words for dead can you say a few of them for us i can't tran- I, I can't pronounce them I, I wouldn't know how to pronounce them it's 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 basically it's a dead language um and also <laughs> i'm looking at you sort of blankly like very like <laughs> It is. It really is. Like there's no. So it's just for the reading. Well, there's modern Icelandic, which is you know yeah. obviously uh, they're using. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure if I tried to speak old Icelandic to them whether they'd laugh at me or whether they just wouldn't understand. I, mean, I did once have a friend who in Greece said to somebody, 
could you tell me the time of the galley leading for the islands, O sailors? And everybody sort of <laughs> fell around with laughter because you don't speak ancient Greek to modern Greeks right. if you don't want them to point their fingers at you and laugh. <laughs> exactly. What time is the ferry would suffice, Precisely, right? Yes. Okay. All right. Well, um, so back to what you've drawn, because again, like sometimes I think, oh, I wish we had a video feed for this radio show too, but um, I guess that defeats the radio aspect. But um, so the runes that you've drawn on the table, uh, can you can you tell us what they mean? There's three. Well, this one, yeah, I've got I've got three runes. I've got um, yeah, which is a protective rune, uh, lagus, which is a water rune, and um, as, which is basically. Um, I keep forgetting that that's a swear word in American. That's why I get oh, laughs no. from Don't kids. Don't say it. Don't which, say it. Which, uh, <laughs> oh, it's okay. <laughs> which is a rune of communication and uh, a rune that signifies the divine. Um, oh, it's the same. Yes. Yes, talking and talking to the gods was basically the same kind of thing in, in, in those days. And runes were used all the time. Runes were a fact of life. If you look at the language, it's full of words for runes. There were runes of victory, runes of protection, runes of concealment, runes of seduction. Um, you know, they were very much, they weren't just something that you used occasionally. They were something that you thought about, talked about all the time. Thank you for clarifying that, because it seems in the, when I was reading uh, a bit about your background, you were saying that to me, runes seemed like it was something that, like you could have dug up in Yorkshire, like something interesting or that was firmly rooted in the past. But, um, but then you said you actually have a practice with them today oh, well, too. Yeah, so they're present in your daily. Well, life. it's it's it is the the closest kind of domestic magic to home to me. I mean, you know, people tend to use all kinds of divination and all kinds of things, and and you know, there are people who like tarot cards and. Um, but you know the, this this sort of thing is just on my doorstep. There are runic monuments all around my uh, my village, and uh, so is it about seeing them and then reading the ones that are there? Then what you come across because it well sometimes yes that that's that's certainly the case. It's so familiar. Mm -hmm. If I were to write a book about gods and goddesses. Um, I wouldn't choose the Greeks and the Romans, however interesting they are, because they, they just seem very remote. And to me as a kid, loving mythology and reading mythology, um, just loving the stories, what I loved best about the Norse myths was that they were so very human and the characters were so accessible and they were really so funny. And they were very funny indeed, and there was something rather earthy and basic Human. about about this this kind of uh, this kind of belief system that you don't really get in uh, in some of the others. And this, it's very appealing to a kid for gods to be flawed and rude and violent and stupid and just just like ordinary people. It's appealing to me, mm, too. Absolutely. <laughs> ordinary people with superpowers, but with, with yes. very human, very recognisable flaws. And, and that, that makes the stories very appealing. It makes the myths very, very practical, very actual, very, very much relative to, to life now. Yeah, yeah. And so, and so when you're... Um that leads me to a couple of ways, but um, so when you're you, when you're drawing the runes on the table that you say signify you, like why do you why do you pick those? Um, I was actually going to do the whole alphabet, but oh, um, okay. runes can be can be written in groupings. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they can be put together to make more significant sigils. So if you if you wanted, if you had a deep desire to achieve something, for instance, um, you would put perhaps several runes together. 
and you would form a kind of magical symbols that you would then think about and you would focus your mind on and hopefully it would help you to achieve your goal. And so I was to school today and there was a little boy who wanted to be good at sports and so I gave him Uru's The Mighty Ox and then I gave him uh, Lagu's Water to make him agile um, because strength and agility is kind of what you need and I wrote it on a little stone and he went off with it in his pocket and, uh, and I hope it works. And so... Um is that what? How did you start the book then? Did you have a group of ruins that you collected together and put in proximity, and there was some sort of idea that came from that, or or what no? Was it was the more basic than you? that. Um, okay, I started it as a bedtime story for my daughter, who is um, an imaginative kid and who loves stories and who loves mythology. And I thought, you know, she was about nine at the time, and she was at the age at which I'd started getting really interested in in myths. And I just started writing a story about a girl very like her living in a world where the Scandinavian and Norse gods still have a kind of cultural priority there and the gods are still alive even though the end of the world has come and gone and they've been defeated but they're still around and magic exists and there are goblins and fairies and demons around but they are all very much underground because the new order, the new religion is marching on and it wants to eliminate everything to do with the old times and so it's a sort of parallel of perhaps what might have happened to the Scandinavian culture as it was slowly replaced by a kind of quite militant aggressive Christianity. And so so when you, so you were actually, the, the birth of the story was one night you're there and you start the story and you you name her Maddie Smith. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and then and you go from there. And then yes, she's called you, Maddie, but she's very much like my daughter Anushka, who, Anushka. who very much determined what happened in this story. I, I started off with a vague idea of what might happen and I thought it's going to be something that she likes. So we're going to put goblins in there and magic and big snakes and, and um, you know, there's going to be a journey and there are going to be Norse gods in there. And every time... I did something that she liked, I could really tell, and she wanted there to be more of a certain character or another. Um, She wanted there to be more goblins, more snakes, more magic, and she wanted it to be funnier. And so, you know, it it kind of took shape according to what she seemed to be enjoying most. And it wasn't really meant for publication at the time, but it it got finished, and I thought, why not? Mm, Yeah, why not? Um, so it was an oral story, and then you wrote it down afterwards. Actually, like a... I wrote it down as I went along. Really? Because okay. I, I'm not so good at making things up completely on the spur of the moment. And so I wrote it chapter by chapter quite fast. Not fast enough for her, though, because she was always <laughs> there going, have you written any more of that book? And if not, why not? And why are you spending all your time writing these other books? Well, this one's obviously the one you should be writing. And I was having a great time. I mean, it, it, was, it gave me a real kick to be writing something that was just for me and for her, and there was no deadline and there was no pressure and it just seemed to be great fun. And it was and it's such a your own world then that you've created. Very much, because in my adult books I've had a lot of magic in one way or another, but it's it's always been restrained in one form or another. And and to be able to go into out and out fantasy, it's quite liberating and uh, and great fun. Especially if you feel as though you you've come from a place where it is all around you. Very you much say. so, yeah. So mm-hmm. that, well, let's let's take a short break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to the Living Writers Show today, Joanne Harris, and her book Rune Marks.
Welcome back. If you're just tuning in today, Joanne Harris and her book, Ruin Marks, and you're listening to The Living Writer Show. I'm T. Hetzel. Um, Joanne, so um, you've got the book before you. Would you mind giving us a, a reading? Okay, well, this is right from the beginning of the book, and it kind of shows how the story starts and introduces the, the general world and the main character. Seven o'clock on a Monday morning, 500 years after the end of the world, and goblins had been at the cellar again. Mrs Scattergood, the landlady at the Seven Sleepers Inn, swore it was rats, but Maddie Smith knew better. Only goblins could have burrowed into the brick-lined floor, and besides, as far as she knew, rats didn't drink ale. But she also knew that in the village of Morbury, as in the whole of the Strand Valley, certain things were never discussed, and that included anything curious, uncanny or unnatural in any way. To be imaginative was considered almost as bad as giving oneself airs, and even dreams were hated and feared, for it was through dreams, or so the good book said, that the seer folk had crossed over from chaos, and it was in dream that the power of the fairy remained, awaiting its chance to re-enter the world. And so the folk of Morbury made every effort never to dream. They slept on boards instead of mattresses, avoided heavy evening meals, and as for telling bedtime tales, well... The children of Morbury were far more likely to hear about the martyrdom of St Sepulchre or the latest cleansings from World's End than tales of magic or of world below. Which is not to say that magic didn't happen. In fact, over the past 14 years, the village of Morbury had witnessed more magic in one way or another than any place in the Middle Worlds. That was Maddie's fault, of course. Maddie Smith was a dreamer, a teller of tales and worse, and as such she was used to being blamed for anything irregular that happened in the village. If a bottle of beer fell off a shelf, if the cat got into the creamery, if Adam Scattergood threw a stone at a stray dog and hit a window instead, ten to one Maddie would get the blame. And if she protested, folk would say that she'd always had a troublesome nature, that their ill luck had begun the day she was born, and that no good would ever come of a child with a ruin mark, that rusty sign on the Smith girl's hand, which some oldsters called the witch's ruin and which no amount of scrubbing would remove. It was either that or blame the goblins, otherwise known as good folk or fairy, who this summer had upped their antics from raiding cellars and stealing sheep, or occasionally painting them blue, to playing the dirtiest kind of practical jokes, like leaving horse dung on the church steps or putting soda in the communion wine to make it fizz, or turning the vinegar to piss in all the jars of pickled onions in Joe Grocer's store. And since hardly anyone dared to mention them, or even acknowledge that they existed at all, Maddie was left to deal with the vermin from under the hill alone, and in her own way. No one asked her how she did it. No one watched the Smith girl at work, and no one ever called her witch except for Adam Scattergood, her employer's son, a fine boy in some ways, but prone to foul language when the mood took him. Besides, they said, why speak the word? That ruin mark surely spoke for itself. Now Maddie considered the rust-coloured mark. It looked like a letter or sigil of some kind, and sometimes it shone faintly in the dark or burned as if something hot had pressed there. It was burning now, she saw. It often did when the good folk were near, as if something inside her were restless and itched to be set free. That summer, 
It had itched more often than ever, as the goblins swarmed in unheard-of numbers, and banishing them was one way of putting that itch to rest. Her other skills remained unused and, for the most part, untried, and though sometimes that was hard to bear, like having to pretend you're not hungry when your favourite meal is on the table, Maddy understood why it had to be so. Cantrips and rune charms were bad enough, but glamours, true glamours, were perilous business, and if rumour of these were to reach world's end, where the servants of the order worked day and night in study of the word. For Maddy's deepest secret, known only to her closest friend, the man-folk knew as One-Eye, was that she enjoyed working magic, however shameful that might be. More than that, she thought she might be good at it too, and, like anyone with a talent, longed to make use of it and to show it off to other people. But that was impossible. At best, it counted as giving herself airs. And at worst, folk had been cleansed for less. Thank you, Joanne. Whenever you say cleansed, I get a little <laughs> nervous. <laughs> well, quite right. <laughs> oh, jeez. Um, how is so? How is it's interesting that you have the the signs, the the rune marks being on on the body, so that she can feel it. Like, why why do you think you made that choice? Like, what was that significant about having? the person marked? Well, I wanted it to be something that you were born with, that you couldn't get away from, something essentially racial. Mm. In fact, there, there's a strong undercurrent of sort of Nazi metaphor running through all of this. Um, there's a lot of, of writing here about identity and what makes you who you are. And Maddie is definitely from another race to the other people around her, the ones who think of themselves as normal. Mm. Yeah. And and even um, it seems like in this world that you've created as well, um, that there's also even animals or then are, are set apart. Some are bo- like a, a pig was That's born right, yes. with the, the rune mark as well. Yeah. Yes, animals are sometimes born with it, too. And people assume that this is a kind of throwback from the old days. And animals who have these marks tend to be slaughtered and people tend to be watched very carefully, if not done away with altogether. And and it seems that it is interesting that it is your the ruin mark marks you. It's a it's a, it's it's part of the identity. Um, a rusty sign even glows when there's there's danger around. Um, is that um, when did that come to you in the process of writing this story? When you were imagining, was that was that there from the beginning, or or when did this? It emerge? was there. It was. I wanted a visible sign um, of what made things different with certain people. And all my gods and chaos figures and fairy figures, they are all marked in this way. And they all also all have these these colours, which only somebody who, who can see them can actually see. But uh, these, these colours, which are basically the signs of the working of magic that they leave behind them and that can be followed like footprints. Yeah, a trail, which is sort of lovely to, to imagine the picture. Like some of the writing, when there, there's many of them around, you can almost see it like it's the Aurora Borealis or the That's Northern right. Lights. Something That's very like much that what I be. had in mind. And also when you look at uh, slow focus photography of roads where you see where cars have mm-hmm. been, but you don't actually see the vehicles. The I light- imagine that being like people doing this and you could see where people had gone. 
and and you could see the kind of leavings of magic, like sort of magic shrapnel. Right, and then it would fade. Yes. As, as if it's like the jet stream up That's in the right. sky that would fade away too. And and I think it was interesting because like using the word, like literally, the ruin is marked on Maddie and, and others, um, some others, special. And so it, it, it marks her. It, it, she's an outsider. So this is very much a book about someone who is an outsider, um, uh, and, yes, mi- and misunderstood so. by everyone around her until that's old, right. old one eye comes. Um, that's right. It is about the awkward squad. It's about how the people who are the outsiders and the ones who are left out and the ones who don't fit in, um, essentially the ones who fight back, are the ones who start stories off. And, and in all my books, this has happened. You've had characters who have been living on the fringes of things. And in one way or another, either for good or ill, they are usually the catalyst for the story. And this is this is true of Maddie as well, because and the other people then are there's some element of distrust as well. That's Very working. much so, yes. Um, because this is five hundred years after Ragnarok and the end of the world. Let's talk about the time yeah. because you said it was important to you that that readers couldn't locate it in a specific well quite time. Can yeah. you speak to that? Yes, I think everybody sees it in a slightly different way. It, it's because it's not a specific place. It doesn't have to be a specific time. It, it's actually a sort of alternate time set in an alternate British Isles where effectively the Scandinavian culture has always been dominant and the Romans never made it. And so Roman culture hasn't made it, Roman roads haven't made it, Roman communications, the language, all these things just haven't happened. And so it's a pre-industrial world. Um, And 500 years have, have elapsed since Ragnarok, the Twilight of the Gods. And so the language has evolved, um, ideas have evolved, which is why Maddie's Maddie's rune mark, which is just a rune, um, a magical symbol, has been translated by the villagers into a ruin mark, uh, something that's a blemish, something that means that she's second rate, and she has been brought up to believe that she's second rate and that she's been marked in this way, marked unfairly, um, all her life. In fact, it's not that at all. It's a sign that she is special, special and yeah. different and she has powers. Um, powers which will eventually become very strong indeed and, and very useful. And, and which equal making her powerful. Absolutely. Which is, which is a wonderful trajectory for the the outsider mm-hmm. who becomes the the most the, the important catalyst for the worlds here. So so let's talk about the maps um, in the book because they're quite detailed um, and, and they come at the very beginning so you can take a look. When did you did you draw the maps to help you chart the, the place in your mind as you were at the beginning when you were writing it? When did you when did the maps emerge? Um, the maps, I mean actually I didn't particularly want to do any maps because I thought it was pretty obvious but um, I think that's partly because I'd been so steeped in the mythology that I didn't need maps but I thought later on that perhaps it would be useful to give somebody some kind of visual. Um, the map of the Nine Worlds is basically just a pictorial depiction of, of what the, the Norse people believed the shape of the universe was. And its core was Yggdrasil, the world ash, and there were then nine worlds suspended in the branches and the roots of the ash, and ours, the human world, was, was the middle world, uh, which was supposed to be ringed about by ocean. After which there were outlands, which... Um, were basically where the giants were from. Um, At the top was Asgard, which was the citadel of the gods. Underneath, there was the realm of the dwarves and the dark elves and the trolls. Then there was Hell, which was basically the afterlife. Dream, which within the Norse idea was actually a world in itself. 
where the experiences that you had were, were real but simply translated through dream. Then below hell there was the netherworld, which is damnation. And then below that there's there's chaos. The The whole idea of the universe within Norse mythology was that it had come to be between two poles, order and chaos, fire and, and ice. And obviously order is ice where there's total stillness and everything is perfect because nothing changes. And chaos is fire because it's just dynamism, it's movement. Um, it's also life um, because you, you can't have life within a desert of ice, which is why that the whole conflict between order and chaos in this book isn't about good and evil. It's about movement and stillness. And the order, for all its wanting to impose order on the world, um, is actually wanting to impose stagnation, which is why they're the bad guys. Yes, yeah. And because things would soon would soon s start to die, wouldn't it? If there exactly. wasn't like a shifting in the balance. Yeah, there, the there is the idea that even chaos is necessary to life because you need to stir the pot from time to time, otherwise nothing will ever happen. You won't get change, and sometimes change is painful, but it's it's always necessary to a certain extent. And and for for the, the world of this book, because you said you were writing it as you were writing other books, uh, much to your daughter's <laughs> impatience <laughs> at times. Um, so so how how long were you in this world? Um, how many years did it take to imagine this story? Well, it took me four years to write the book, but I'd, I'd written things about this world before, and I'd written Norse God stories before, and I think... You know, even when I was a small child, I was kind of devising the, the universe that, that, that eventually takes shape in this. And so it was very familiar to me. The whole thing was very familiar to me. And, and Maddie's village and, and her Strand Valley is just basically another version of the village that I live in, which is a small, tight, closed community in the north. Uh, it has a hill called Castle Hill. It's got mountains on one side. Um, it's got forests. Uh, it, it is a very similar kind of place. And so, I mean, to me, it was it was just it was just home. Yes, and, and as you said, like a parallel landscape to home mm. from your. So how interesting! So something that you were inhabiting as a child, these ideas too, That's these right. stories. As well, well, as a child, I was making stories up all the time, and uh, you know, I mean, half half of my life was spent in dream all the time. It was, I didn't have an awful lot of things to come out of my imagination for, and so, uh, you know, everything I did was an excuse for another story. Well, let's take let's take a break on that note, Joanne. Joanne Harris, her book Ruin Marks. Uh, we'll be right back. Ma chambre a la forme d'une cage. Le soleil passe son bras par la fenêtre. Les chasseurs à ma porte comme les petits soldats qui veulent me prendre. Je ne veux pas travailler, je ne veux pas déjeuner, je veux seulement oublier, et puis je fume. Déjà j'ai connu le parfum de l'amour, un million de roses n'embarrerait pas autant. Maintenant une seule fleur dans mes entourages me Je ne suis pas fier de sa vie qui veut me 
Good afternoon. If you're just tuning in, it's the Living Writer Show. Um, and today, Joanne Harris. And we're talking about her book, Ruin Marks. And uh, in one of the uh, copies, uh, Joanne, in the galley, it's said on the back, um, this is her first book for young readers. And I wanted to throw that out to you because usually they say that um, the authors um, create their, their small bios. But I, I thought, I don't know, for some reason, not like I know you well, but I thought you might balk at that a little bit. Because, I do a bit. Okay. Why? And why, why would I sense that about? <laughs> I, um, I, I balk at it slightly because it suggests a sort of book apartheid that says you're not allowed to read it because you're not a young reader, uh, which is kind of unfair. And I also think that, you know, I, I don't see why an interest in the wondrous and the fantastic should cease with age. Um, actually, that's e- exactly what I'm writing about. And I, I'm, I'm trying to say that that's not what would happen. And so in a way, it's kind of um, it's kind of ironic. I mean, I was doing the Edinburgh Book Festival not long ago, and there was this old, old lady in the in the queue. And she was so old that they had to bring a stool for her to sit on while she was queuing. And she, she finally got to me and, and I said, well, would you like me to? Is this for a child? Is this for a gift? And she said, no, no, it's for me. I haven't read any fantasy yet, but I'm going to try yours. And two weeks later, I got a letter from her saying how much she loved the book. And she said, I noticed that you're writing a sequel. Um, I do hope you'll be quick with it because I may not be here for very long. Oh, <laughs> 94 she was. And oh, I think if she could start wow. reading fantasy at 94, then anybody could. Yeah, she's like the spokesmodel for Absolutely. <laughs> and so you are you are writing a sequel for Rune Marks. I'm going to have to. Um, my daughter won't let me leave uh, my characters the way I've left them. There, there are too many loose ends to tie up, she tells me. And besides, she's putting in requests for other things now. She wants demon werewolves in the next one. Uh, and more snakes, and she wants it to be even funnier, and the, the whole thing starts again. It's going to be great fun. How old is she now? She's now 14. So I wonder if this will change some of the story at all, like how it's developing and what, because no, we'll, we'll Maddie do. will be Maddie will be again, right? She'll be back. Maddie will, Maddie will be the same age as Anushka by the time I finish the book, so I guess she'll be about 16 by then. Mm. And have you sort of, so you've started it, like you've kind of put one foot back into the world. Definitely. I mean, it will take me some time to write it because it took me some time to write Rune Marks. It took me four years and I'm I'm not, I'm hoping it won't take me four years to write the next one, but it will take the time that it takes. And yeah, it will develop and I can see what certain things that that might have to happen. And 
I have to say it was inevitable. I had so much fun writing this one. It wasn't going to be the only one ever, definitely. Right. Well, that's good. A lot of people like this This lady will be uh, <laughs> relieved. That's so sweet that she it said, was. please try. But that's sort of some sobering pressure, too. Maybe <laughs> you can send her some like little like notes on it or something. So take it. So was she one of had she read your other books then? And, and that's yeah, she why had. she wanted to to make the leap with you. Into she the had. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm very lucky. I've got an extremely good, tolerant readership, and they followed me into all sorts of places because I've done all kinds of different things. You know, I've written short stories and cookbooks and books set in France and thrillers, and I just did um, a murder mystery, and, and now there's this, this fantasy novel. And I find that they're very accepting of many things, and they are just happy to be told a story, and that's great. Because it's the art of the storytelling itself, even if it's using these different... Um, vehicles or genres or you yeah. know, that what's it what's at stake is this what's important is the story is absolutely that... I think people want to be told stories and and sometimes I think authors get kind of pushed into writing the same story again and again and I would be terribly bored doing that I'd much rather people read the book several times than me have to write it again because that, that just takes so long right right but it also seems like in in something that you said uh when I was uh reading about you um that always sounds so dis- <laughs> creepy but <laughs> anyway, about me, yeah. Yeah. there's a lot uh, of weird stuff written about me but some of it's true um oh now great now it's just flown out of my mind well if it comes back to me i'll never know we'll never know what i was gonna say about that um oh dear well anyway um a slight pause there uh you're you're now your dra- your drawing is distracting me i'm You've sorry drawn, i'll stop Maddie. drawing no do what you want you will anyway <laughs> <laughs> and anyway it's, it's it's the college radio table that'll it's only being uh that's true added yeah. to here um well so so the writing of this so when you're it sounds like you're a person, a writer that can <laughs> in, inhabit multiple worlds in these different projects that you're doing, because it seems like they're projects that you're you're juggling. Is that true? But yeah. at the same time, or I do juggle. I, I think the thing with me is that I, I do write quite fast, but I do require a lot of thinking time too. And so the what thinking do you mean time by that? is, you know, you 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 cook it up, but it takes some time to 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 come to the boil, really, and that's what it is. And so while I'm waiting for the thinking time, and sometimes I just reach a point in a book where I don't know what happens next, and I have to wait to find out what happens. And rather than wait and worry, I would rather go and work on something else until I I find the thread of the story again. Sometimes I can write 150 pages of a book, and then I leave it for a year because I'm not quite sure where it goes, and then I get an idea, and I start again, and I finish it. Um, Which is why um, my books do seem to come at regular intervals, but they're not written in that way at all. Some, you know, Gentlemen and Players, for instance, took me seven, eight years to write, um, because I kept going back to it, leaving it, doing something else, coming back to it again. Um, So the, the process is never quite as logical as the industry would have you think. And they would love to think that I write a book a year and, and that it's, it's you know, it's like sowing corn and, and it's it's <laughs> springtime, so it's time for that John Harris woman to have got another book. And it doesn't work that way. It really doesn't. <laughs> I know, that would be an elaborate system of runes that you'd have to set up to well, get that quite. sort of timing to be um, like clockwork. Um, and and so, so going back to what you said, Joanne, a, a little bit before where um, you feel like some writers are pushed right like the story some people would say that um that that 
the people sometimes are writing the same story, even if it's in different guises. And in in what when when I was reading about you, you had said that you think some of your your readers who know you will recognize some of the, your concerns, yes. even showing through ruin marks. Like uh, of course, yeah. I mean, although it isn't the same story and it's not even the same genre of story. And there's not one recipe me. in there. No, there's no recipes. <laughs> there's no French people. There's no food. Um, you know, there's no role for Johnny Depp in there, whatever. But uh, <laughs> He could play the goblin. <laughs> he could do, yeah. He'd probably like it too. Um, but no, it's, it's, there are certain things that preoccupy me and interest me. And people who know me and who know what I write will know that there are certain things that I'll go back to. I mean, that there are... There are certain things that you can you can trace through most of my books. There is usually an outsider in there. There's usually a kind of kick-ass independent woman who isn't afraid to stir trouble up. Um, there is very often some kind of negative authority figure, and, and frequently it's something to do with the church. Now, in Runemarks, the order isn't isn't the the Catholic Church or the Christian Church, but it's certainly a kind of very patriarchal, militant, intolerant dehumanizing system and so that that's all fairly recognizable plus you know it's me writing here i I can't write as somebody else and nor would we ask you to for (laughs) i don't know sort of the royal we i'll throw that in there well um well let's take we'll take a short break you're listening to uh wcbn fm ann arbor and we'll be right back with joanne harris Just a little girl I asked my mother What will I be? Welcome back, Kesara Sara, <laughs> and you're listening to the Living Writers Show. I'm T Hetzel today. Joanne Harris um, on tour with Rune Marks. Um, all right, so back to talking a little bit about the ideas within the book, Joanne. Um, so, so one of the the strange you were talking you were talking about or the order the order in this, and it's and and this is the the authority. Like one of the things that you said people would recognize in your work would be that there's. Um, 
like a figure taking a stand against a negative authority, yes. perhaps. Or a, an authority that's perceived to be negative because it's corrupt. Yes, yeah. And um, and so with this, it's in, in this book, it's the order. Mm-hmm. And, um, and what's interesting is because they're, they're doing these cleansings and they're very much against like anything that would be like Maddie, who has a ruin mark or Quite, any sort yes. of m- magic or... Anything that they think is magic or demonic or just not, not allowed, a, a part of chaos. I mean, in this case, they're not corrupt. They're just very misled because they believe that order is the way to go. And they're not afraid to sacrifice the imagination, the personality, the individual. Um, they're <laughs> no not dreaming. afraid to be in, intolerant uh, because they feel that in the long run, to impose perfect order on the world would be to impose perfect goodness and perfect peace. But but then how? But then in the book, how are they? How are they going about these either cleansings or their in their fight in their aspect of the fight against the fairy or the folk like the seer folk? Um, well, like, what? like the Nazis, they have a very strong ideology and they believe that what they are doing is for the good of the race and they believe that they're wiping out an inferior race, which is the race of chaos. Um, but they have a book too. They have they something have called too. like the good book and it they has have, like locks on it that only yeah, very... They have the good book uh, and they, they also have access to all records, to all history or at least all history that anyone's allowed to remember. And no one else has access no one to that. So that's access. a comment on No knowledge. one else reads and writes because obviously knowledge is power and they don't want other people to have power. And so they, they have basically all the information that's available about the old times. And of course, they have tweaked it to serve their purpose, as as historians tend to when they want to impose some sort of agenda of control, much as, as the Nazis tried to do. And joining together, like that aspect of, of, of using minds, because that's what's, that's what's uh, you know, it's, it, it's, it is, it's ironic that they would say you can't practice anything that that seems to approach magic and well because they have their own magic of course but they they call it the word and to them it's divine and miraculous as opposed to demonic and therefore not allowed but Um, very much the the excuse that they give themselves of course it's the same (laughs) thing it's it's still magic but it's seen from somebody else but the the order doesn't use individual magic the order is very much a collective um, there are these 10,000 clerics and priests of different different types and, and different levels. And numbers. And They're yes, numbers. absolutely, but they, they don't have names. They join the order at 12. They abandon their families. They abandon their name. They take on a number. And the order becomes their only family and their only loyalty. And so that way they can cleanse anybody they like, including a family member, um, and not feel any kind of guilt. And also their strengths... Um, is in their numbers because the word is basically the focusing of the will of all these thousands of people together. No individual um, examiner or priest of the order has any particular power at all. It, it's all to do with the the mass, the community. So, so when you're writing and and these stories and these concerns, I mean, it seems obvious then from what you've you've said today, Joanne. It's that you you really have these strong beliefs, and th- these are. Um, uh, even uh, uh, that you can um, then transpose into thinking about the daily, like what, like just today. <laughs> yeah, well, it's sort of like you, you know. My strong beliefs have something to do with suspicion of large organizations and suspicion of strong ideologies that are used by individuals, obviously flawed individuals, to establish an agenda of control. And a lot of people have have felt that I was, you know talking about a specific religion or a specific church but actually it's just it is human nature to abuse 
authority in this way. And it's been done by politicians, it's been done by religious folk, it's been done by pretty much anybody in power you can name. Yes. It is yes. about intolerance and about the rights of the individual and about the, the value of being an individual and what it means to be an individual. Rah, rah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and so 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 that that is that's so and this is going to be so I, I so I love that so this is this book is serious it's like this magical world where you can go in and 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 be there and navigate this adventure with Maddie and um and get, well, it, yeah it's serious but it's also funny I, I yeah. take fun very seriously actually and and you know I I wanted to have some kind of echo of the fun and the the real humor that exists in Norse mythology and so I introduced various characters who are not only comic relief but who are just the essence of fun and mischief and I have goblins in there and I have Loki of course Loki, who is the, yeah. the spirit of discord an, an anti-hero he's an anti-hero but actually in, in this book he becomes much more than just a bad guy um, yes he's actually the hero part of that <laughs> yes he's he's a reluctant hero if you like uh, but he is certainly there to, to make sure that, that stories happen because he's always the catalyst for stories whether he does something bad or not yes uh, in, thank in goodness the Norse He's, he's always the the catalyst for for an event of some kind. Right. <laughs> yeah. Thank thank goodness for him. Well. Um. So so this is going to be a bit. Thank you so much for talking about this great book. And I wish you know we could talk about the ruins of the Elder Script because you also had had mentioned um, that it was important that this not be rooted in a real time and also that the. Um, that the 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 ruins themselves, like the script that you were using, I made some notes on it. Whereas it? it's like um, well, the ruins version are, are, of younger foot hark. I'm, I'm yeah, that's right. I've, I've, because there are several that. runic systems. The, mm-hmm. Because runes were were very widespread throughout Europe, there are lots of runic systems. And the one that Americans are most likely to be familiar with um, is the the early English runic system. Um, I've used the Icelandic ones on purpose because I want to introduce new runes later on and so I used a shorter system with only 16 runes because I wanted to introduce new ones to symbolise new gods. Um, And so I've used an existing runic system. It's it's perfectly authentic, although it is slightly different to some of the others. Um, I've done that on purpose so that the the, the rune geeks out there will, will, will know that I've actually not just made them up. Right. Um, <laughs> the it's quite important. It, um, otherwise, I shall get lots and lots of, of, of hate mail from, from people who know about runes or at least who use one runic system saying, you've got that one upside down, that one doesn't look the same. Um, there were so many manageable. variations. This one was manageable and yes. you could add to it. Yes, that's right. And and so what about this flack then? Because, I mean, you've mentioned it, like it seems like you don't mind kind of f- f- just putting it out there because there's going to be obvious there's must be there's bound to be flack for like the magic and the be. and then the and then this there might be in, ruin in, geeks <laughs> no I, I i i never get flack from readers really i don't i get flack from people who haven't read the book yeah and who Doesn't think that, that the they way? know all about it um and and it, it actually rarely happens but you know i mean I think that in some ways it's quite flattering if a story stirs up enough indignation in somebody that they can write hate mail. Yes. yes. I think it's, it's, <laughs> it, is, it, it bolsters my confidence in the power of story to do this. Stories should be like this. Stories should raise temperatures and make people think. And, and I hope that's what they do. 
Yes. Yeah. I had actually a student said that if you've if you get a piece of hate mail, you know that you've made it, you know, sort of like if you've done something strong enough to 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 require that kind of a response. (laughs) I think it's wonderful that that, it's actually the closest thing to real magic we've got that we can you know, just put these marks on paper and somebody halfway across the world will laugh or cry or get indignant or get excited because of something you wrote. And it, it's wonderful and it's rather humbling and rather scary, but it's it's pure voodoo. It's great. That is, I, you know, I don't think I've ever really thought about it that connected, like writing is, is magic of some sort. It's nice to hear it described like that. It's voodoo. That's, that's wonderful. Well, um, it, what what is like what how many projects are you working on right now would mostly what two i've got my new adult book which is uh, a sort of murder mystery a kind of experiment a lot of my books are experimental i'm not quite sure where it's going at the moment but it's, it's a kind of exciting halfway mark where i'm not quite sure whether it's it's going somewhere or whether it's just all pants and i'm going to have to trash it <laughs> um, and i'm also working on the sequel to rune marks which is called rune light Moonlight. Which is still in its its infancy, and Anushka keeps poking me in the arm and going, "How much have you done?" and "What that much? Why haven't you done any more?" And um, now, are you still are you reading it to her in the evenings now, am, yes. or does she read it on her? Own? Well, she'd read it on her own, but she likes to be read to. Yeah, you know, she she still likes to be read to. I like. To I be love read that. To. Yes. Yeah. I think it's it's rather nice. I don't think that's something that people should grow out of. No. Nor nor magic. If there was um, if to use, do you use ruins um, as sort of a, a like in a date? Like, did you use any ruins today besides the one that you drew on our table? Um, I do use runes quite often. Um, to me, they're very familiar and they're very yes. comforting, and and they're comforting symbols. Um, I also have a number of little superstitions, and I put runes in books when I sign them, and. Uh, and I occasionally mark things with fair for success and, and various other things. The, the, you know, the, the way you might just use a kind of little mental touchstone to, to make yourself feel better. Right. I think really, you know, essentially that's what magic is. It's, and it's magic, superstition, belief, folklore, religion are all kind of rolled into the same kind of big ball whereby you perform certain ritual actions because they make you feel better. Yes, and and writing is part of that. Absolutely, writing is part of that. Well, thank you so much, Joanne Harris, for being here. And and um, gosh, I wish you well on this tour. You're going to be you're you're going to be you're going to be on the road for a bit. A little bit, but it's always and then, nice. And I meet lots of great people on the road, and I collect lots of stories, which is really what it's all about. Yes, it was well. I look forward to seeing you next time around, maybe for your next book. And um, you've been listening to the Living Writers Show. Thanks to Alex Sergey for engineering today. Um, let's see well um, thanks for listening Ann Arbor Uh, thanks for streaming maybe you're in Florida Chicago Seattle Um, take a look for Joanne Harris's book Ruin Marks Um, my name is T. Hetzel The Living Writers Show until next time
hacía en la canción Mostrándome un nuevo mundo de pasión Amándome sin egoísmo y la razón No más sin saber que era el amor Yo protegí mi corazón El sol se fue Y yo cantando tu canción La soledad Se adueña de toda emoción Perdóname Si el miedo robó la ilusión No viniste a mí no supe amar y solo queda esta canción. Mostrándome un nuevo mundo de pasión Amándome sin egoísmo y la razón Más sin saber que era el amor Yo protegí mi corazón, el sol se fue y yo cantando tu canción, la soledad se adueña de toda emoción. Perdóname si el miedo robó mi ilusión. Viniste a mí. lined up in front of Brown. They're going to give it to him on that left side once again to the 15. Big hole of the 20. 25-30. 35-40. Look out. 45-50. It's a foot race. Down the sideline to the 30. To the 20. Nobody's going to catch him. 10-5. Touchdown Michigan. What a run by Carlos Brown. You're listening to the Daily Sports Report on WCBM 88.3 FM and our Good everybody. Michael Govier here with you at the Daily Sports Report for Wednesday afternoon, January 23rd. we got Rushi running the controls, and he'll be chiming in, along with Gordon Chaffin on Michigan Sports. 
Uh, Gordon, you want to dive right into it? What's going on in Michigan sports this afternoon? Uh, surprisingly a lot, actually. Um, I don't know if any of you guys caught it last night, but uh, the men's basketball game was strangely close for our Michigan Wolverines. We had Manny Harris with a career-high 26 points, and I turned it on with about two minutes left, and I didn't have to turn it off out of disgust, so that was impressive. Um, we play, It was against Wisconsin, if you, hadn't, if you didn't know, and um, we had a surprisingly good effort. I don't know if you caught the daily on uh, Monday, but it was big headline, beeline, focusing on defense. The defense showed up, so that was a good thing. Yeah, I watched the game last night, and I was waiting for the other shoe to drop. I was pretty sure it wasn't going to work out because, you know, they played the UCLA game. That was good for, what, three quarters of the game? Yeah. And then they totally shut them down. So I figured, you know, this was fun for a while, but I was waiting for that five-minute mark and Wisconsin to go on the 10-0 run. But they were in it to the very end, and if uh, Manny hadn't turned it over there, we would have had a shot. Of Obviously, it was a huge shot by Landry to win the game. Yeah, it was almost an impressive comeback. At one point, it was an 11-2 run by Michigan to come with to t- eventually tie the score at 